This is Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice. Conversation based on the book Hurt with Fetters, hosted by Pastor Greg Smith and author Jason Karsh. This is a podcast for people who want to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. Welcome again to our Hurt with Fetters podcast. I'm Greg Smith, pastor at First Baptist Church, Missouri, Texas, and I'm sitting here with uh, Jason Karch, author of the book Hurt with Fetters. Jason, good to see you today and welcome. Well, once again, I'm glad to be here, Pastor. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, reflections on the fall. And let's just begin. When you say the fall, what are you referring to? What does that mean? Theologically, we typically talk about the fall as the fall of mankind into sin. You know, in our past episodes, we've talked about how each person, each man, woman, child, is created in the image and likeness of God with inherent dignity and worth. We talked about how when God created humanity, he, he saw that mankind was very good. And in our original state, we possessed this goodness. Well, something happened to cause that image to be marred, not lost, but but marred. And so theologically, when we talk about the fall, we're talking about the fall of mankind into sin. We would call it original sin, uh, hereditary guilt. So what what issue or, or what role, I guess, does just the concept or the understanding of the fall or that we are all fallen or that we are all sinners as Paul said in Romans 3.23. Let's speak here just for a, uh, a few moments about uh, this concept of original sin or inherited guilt or hereditary corruption. Uh, different theologians speak of this in different ways. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So that image of God has been marred. It hasn't been removed. It hasn't been taken away, but it has been marred. So one of the things that you articulate here, and I believe this was uh, uh, this was Schaefer who actually suggested that uh, that original sin is the single most empirically verifiable doctrine. Chesterton said it's the only doctrine philosophy validated by thousands of years of recorded human history. Uh, Mueller says that sin itself betrays its presence in manifold forms when we fix our eyes upon the closest relationships of society. What do you mean by that? Just, just comment on that for just a second. Well, just watch the world news. You know, there's bad stuff. People do bad things all the time. The universality of sin that is common among all humanity. You know, like, you know, Muggeridge would say is the single most empirically verifiable doctrine out there. You know, we may struggle over determining, you know, the verifiability of the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, but when it comes to the sinfulness of humanity, that's something we see on a day-to-day basis. If we look closely at our own hearts, you know, we see it in ourselves. If we're honest with ourselves. If we're honest. And, and I've used the illustration before. If you want to see, if you don't believe in original sin, set a couple of two-year-olds, set them down and put one cookie in between them or a toy in between them and see what happens, right? Uh, you'll see original sin come out pretty quick. 
Right. So we have all sinned. And, you know, the, the scripture, the Apostle Paul talks about we, we have become slaves to sin. Basically meaning it has mastered us in a way that, that we cannot. And this is the reality for everyone, good people and bad people, whatever the narrative might be, right? But you quote Schleiermacher, who suggests a communal aspect to sinfulness or original sin. What do you mean by that, or what does that mean to you? We'll take your analogy of the two-year-olds. You set them in there and you give them one cookie or or one fire truck, and one of them takes the fire truck from the other one. So now you got the sinfulness of two people occurring in a communal setting. If you got the little guy with his fire truck all by himself, now he may be a little selfish guy in reference to his fire truck, but he hasn't really expressed that yet until you put him in a community setting where somebody without the fire truck tries to take his fire truck. So this goes to basically your definition. This becomes the thesis of uh, the chapter that that selfishness basically is the is the foundation or the root of sin that it is our own self-centered selfish nature that causes us to sin against others and if there weren't others to sin against that we wouldn't and and Schleiermacher even just makes the point that everyone knows that their own sinfulness is caused by others but also that their own real sin causes the sinfulness of others so that we are all guilty, but we're guilty in a, in, a, in a corporate sense, which I thought was kind of interesting and I, I still am not quite sure about. Well, with theologians, you know, would, would articulate this in different ways. For instance, I was reading a, uh, a transcript of a debate between R.C. Sproul and Greg Bonson from 1977, and both of these guys are Reformed thinkers. And what they're debating is an understanding of natural theology from within the Reformed tradition. And so they're, they're debating this, and they use the example of Eve when she eats of the fruit in the garden that precipitates the fall of mankind into a sin. If when Satan tempted her with the fruit, if she would have said, no, you know, I've been watching my figure, so I won't eat. Now, she doesn't eat the fruit, but does that mean she doesn't eat the fruit for a sinless reason. Now, both of these guys, if they were to articulate the nature of sin, they would see it in a radically different way than Schleiermacher. So I understand that different theologians would articulate the nature of sin differently than selfishness. We're created for community. You know, that's why God says, you know, that's the point I try to make earlier in the book, we're created for community. So sin emerges in community, you know, and I think that when you think about Sproul and Bonson, you know, arguing over Eve, the scripture says Eve didn't sin, she was deceived, but in a communal setting, she turned and gave the fruit to her husband, who was with her. Hmm. She didn't have to take it to him somewhere, he was right there with her. And he's the one that received the original command from God, she didn't receive the command from God. Exactly. So is sin then, or sinfulness, not simply the act that you commit, but the nature of who and what you are? Well, I think because of inherited guilt, because of our fall into sin by nature, we are now marred by sin. We're selfish by nature. So you make the, the point or you make the statement, characterizing sin as selfishness puts sin beyond mere activity. So it's not simply what you do. 
it's who you are, the way you approach that. I mean, you know, you mentioned Eve. If she had said, no, I, I'm not going to eat because I am watching my figure. But let's go to another, you know, biblical account, which is the, uh, the prodigal son. So the prodigal son gets his dad's inheritance and goes off and squanders it and riotous living and everything else like that. But there's another son in the story. He doesn't do any of those things. But then when the son comes home, he tells his dad, why are you taking him back? Because he's wasted your money on harlots and prostitutes. Well, how did he know that? Maybe he knew that because that's what he would have done. Maybe he wanted to do that all along. He just didn't have the guts or he didn't have the whatever. I'm thinking in terms of, okay, so if I wanted money to, to buy a new truck and I thought, well, I could go rob somebody and get the truck, but I don't do it. Why? Because I'm... Uh, afraid, weak, maybe I don't want to be punished, whatever it is, but I don't. But still in my mind, I'm thinking, I really want that truck. How am I going to get that? I could do this, this, this. I guess the point would be, Jesus said, if you covet in your heart, or if you if you have hatred in your heart, or if you lust in your heart, you know, what goes on on the inside, you're guilty, right? I mean, is that the point? That's the point. That's the point. We don't necessarily have to act on that selfishness for that selfishness to be a reality in our lives. So just taking this one step further then in our response to all of this. So Christian theology taken as a whole, you write, captures the equity we share as bearers of God's image as well as the corporate culpability we share as sinners. The corporate culpability we share as sinners. We cannot have one without the other. That is, the equity as image bearers of God and the corporate culpability we share as sinners. And I wonder if someone broke into my house and uh, they threatened my family or they were going to take my property, would I be justified to take matters into my own hand and pull out a gun and shoot that person? And what would that mean, you know, to me? Well, would you be justified? I think that's the key question. Would you be justified? Now, there are some theologians who would ascribe to, like, just war theories or maybe like a righteous anger that would justify or warrant you using whatever force necessary to stop this person from harming your family or yourself, even if that means taking his life to stop him from doing that. Would that be sin? But I think that's sin because of, because of his selfishness, his sinfulness. <clears throat> he's entered your home with the intent of taking your things, harming your family, harming you. And now here it is, you are put in a position in this communal setting again, put in a position to where you have to exercise a certain amount of force to stop him, even if it means taking his life. But you can't walk away from that situation, you know, with your head held up thinking that was a righteous act. No, because taking the life of somebody else is a sinful act. And because of our selfishness of self-preservation, but the selfishness of the preservation of our family, we're put in a position to where we have to take this guy's life to stop him from doing that. We don't walk away from that justified. I think we walk away from that all the more brokenhearted. And with the Apostle Paul, cry out, Maranatha, Lord, come, come. And so this doesn't have to happen no more. So some guy's not breaking into my stuff, putting me in a position to where I got to 
do something bad to him to stop it. You know, calling it sin, I think, is, is you know, might not resonate with some people. But, but what did Luther say about this? Well, he said sin and sin boldly. And what did he mean by that? Well, he meant that because we are sinners, the world will put us in positions to where that we will have to commit sin against somebody else. You know, because we're not acting justly. And so I think, you know, the, the power of the equality we share as humans by virtue of being created in the image of God, and we share this corporate culpability, man, that can only be rectified through a relationship with God so that we can once again rightly relate to one another. What role does that play in the criminal justice system today or the way that justice is administered in this country? I believe that, as we've talked about before, there is a legitimacy for uh, the criminal justice system. The reality of the criminal justice system is necessary, I think, because of this issue of the sinfulness of mankind. We do things to one another that are not right, are not good, are not just. It doesn't reflect the common equity and value we share as human beings when we abuse one another in this fashion. So there has to be some kind of checks and balances to fix that. And so I think the existence of the criminal justice system is an indication that something has actually gone wrong uh, with humanity. And so I think the relevance for this idea of the fall as we apply it to the criminal justice system, I think it's important for us to see it rightly in order to not perpetuate the abuses. Well, let's see how, you know, that might play out in a practical way. So uh, someone commits a crime and then at some point is brought into a courtroom. And so there is a judge, there is a prosecuting attorney, there is a jury, there is the defendant, there's the defendant's attorney. And so in that context, what what is the issue here or, or why is an understanding of this, uh, of, of the fall of mankind, the, the, the sinfulness of all, why is that significant to the discussion? In the past, we've talked about how we share this common equity by virtue of being created in the image and likeness of God. We're equal in that respect. And so I, I use the illustration of my jury in my trial. Had you tried to convince the people on my jury that they were equal to me, they would have been offended by that. But we don't just share a common equality because we've been created in the image and likeness of God, but we share another type of equality because of our sinfulness, because of this fall into sin, because of our disobedience to God. We share a common bankruptcy in our natures that kind of manifest itself in this unrelentless drive towards selfishness. And so if you try to tell people who are in a jury, tell a judge, a prosecutor, even a defense attorney, all of you are actually in the same boat as this guy who's the defendant of this crime in relation to your being created in the image and likeness of God and in relation to your common sinfulness. People don't, don't receive that too well. Don't want to see that and don't because... If you're and and the prosecuting attorney has a motivation to try to convince the jury that they're not anything like this guy sitting over here, so that they can convict him and, if necessary, send him to prison for life or whatever it is. You make this statement that I just want to 
to just have you respond to. You say that this leaves in the mind of jurors that their duty is not necessarily to fairly assess guilt, but a predisposition to an idea that their duty as innocence is to deal adequately with the guilty. And I just wonder if, if that is a fair assumption. Most jurors, you know, would they say, okay, I know I'm innocent and this guy's guilty and I need to assess that. I mention that because I've served on a jury before and I think that myself and probably the other 11 that were, that were trying to assess the innocence or guilt of this, this guy came in it with the, the notion or the idea that we want to do what's right and if he's innocent, we want to find him innocent. If he's guilty, we want to find him guilty. But it's a very, very difficult task, you know, because the jury has to assess, you know, all of the evidence and then, you know, make some kind of decision. And sometimes that, that's not easy. But, but just to say that in the mind of, of the jurors, that their role is not necessarily to fairly assess guilt, but as an innocent to deal with the guilty. I, I just wonder if you'd respond to that. Well, I think in the minds of jurors, there is a weight, a realized weight that they have to come to a decision to determine based on the evidence, again, whether this person is innocent or guilty. But somewhere in their minds, they're thinking that this person wouldn't be here unless there is some mitigating evidence that would have put him there in the first place to put them in a position to where they got to make this type of decision. But I don't think it's necessarily that. There's something deeper that's embedded in there because I've talked about in you know, in my voir dire process to where the question is asked, in the event that this person is found guilty, are you in a position to be able to extend the punishment to the fullest extent of the law? The implication there is you have a responsibility as a juror to do that. And, and, if, you, and if you would say, no, I'm not sure I could do that, you're excluded from the jury. You're excluded from the jury. Or even beyond that, you know, we mentioned the guy who was struck from a jury pool because he, along with some other people, saw that prison functioned primarily as rehabilitative as opposed to punishment. So even if you send a guy to prison for 25 years with the mindset that he's gonna go and get some help to get reformed, get rehabilitated, to get reintegrated back into society, that's not the mindset you're supposed to have as a juror. You're supposed to be able to send this guy to prison for as long as he can go there for the purpose of punishing him for this kind of crime. Okay, and that is the prosecuting attorney's goal, all right, because his role is not necessarily to seek justice, it's to get convictions and to send people to prison for as long as possible. Is that really the way that works? I mean, is that what his goal or his thinking is and he wants to try to put that into the mind of the jury even, I mean, because that's part of the narrative, I suppose. Is, is that right? Is that what you're suggesting? Well, think about our system is adversarial by nature. We have an adversarial criminal justice system. So you have a prosecuting attorney, you have a defense attorney, and for these guys, their credentials are built on wins and losses. And so for a, for a prosecuting attorney, he don't win simply by a conviction. A win for him is a conviction associated with the longest prison sentence available. That's a win for him. And so you made the statement when you served on a jury for you and for the other 11 people, you have a desire to do what is right in reference to this defendant in this trial. Do what's right in reference to the state. Do what's right in reference to the victims. To do what's right. That's not in the mind of a prosecutor. That's not in the mind of a defense attorney. 
Would that certainly, yeah, he's trying to get his his client off, regardless of guilt or innocence. That's that's not the point. So if the if if, if we were to to come to a understanding on the part of each one of those people that are involved in criminal justice system, that we are all fallen, that we're all broken, we're all messed up, and that if the story of criminal justice recognizes or posits that things are not what they should be, so what should happen? So you would think that the answer to that would be, the criminal justice system should be try should try to reorient or put things back in a proper place or setting, right? But that is not what actually happens, right? No, and I think when you think about the prosecutor, most judges served as either prosecutors or a defense attorney. You know, prior to their becoming a judge, you know, they served in other roles. Some prosecutors were defense attorneys, you know, they served in the public defender's office before they became prosecutors. Vice versa, some defense attorneys were prosecutors before they became defense attorneys. So these roles shift, but in each case, these people are thoroughly invested in the narrative of criminal justice. It's in their schooling. It's in the way that they are taught what criminal justice is, taught what law is. And so there's a distinction now, there's two different really schools of thought here. You have the classical and the positivist understanding of criminal justice, right? That okay. kind of unpack that yeah, just a little bit. Sets the plot of the okay. story. And so, for the classical position, humans are believed to be predisposed to pursuing pleasure, and the state has a distinct responsibility to create boundaries that hedge in that pursuit. You know, you mentioned in our previous discussion built into our laws in this nation we have a right to a pursuit of happiness well some people's ideas of happiness need to have boundaries sure because they'll try to be happy at the expense of somebody else and the law prohibits that Uh, so the law restricts your pursuit of happiness when it infringes on the right or the happiness of someone else yeah and, and those boundaries are maintained by the threat of punishment or reprisals in reference to the law. Okay. But in this school, humans are basically good. You know, we all share an equal goodness among one another. And in the second school, the positivist, which is by far the most uh, influential school when it comes to the current narrative of criminal justice, it serves as the, the dominant theoretical framework from which this story is told. And it builds a dichotomy between good and bad people. It separates the good people from the bad people. And uh, so the positivist, legal positivism anyway, serves as, you know, the framework from which, you know, we determine who is the bad people and who is the good people. And we use this dichotomy to determine that. So, So is that what you mean when you would say that the story of criminal justice or when you would write this... The story of criminal justice realizes that things are not what they should be, but it doesn't serve to reorient dignity and value. It undermines it. What do you mean by that? Well, anytime one person sees him or herself as the good, the innocent, the pure, and that this person over here has a predisposition to commit crime, and by virtue of that, he's the bad person, and my responsibility is to control, confine, 
or whatever this bad person that doesn't restore the dignity and the value of this person who has been caught up in criminal acts you know there's no redemption for him no restoration for him no rehabilitation for him really because he's predisposed to this this is the way he is this is the way he's gonna be there's no fixing him and so when people one group of people deals with another group of people in that way it perpetuates injustice so how would understanding the fact that we all share a fallen human nature change that it changes it fundamentally I think if I if I am on a jury and I see myself in the same shoes potentially in the same shoes as this person how would I want to be dealt with would I want an opportunity if I made this mistake would I want the opportunity to be redeemed to be restored back to society to look at everybody else as we share a, a common equality, that we share the same value, the same dignity, the same worth. Would I want that for myself if I was in that seat? And it goes back to you know Representative Joe Moody, who was a prosecutor, who made the comment that in prosecutor school, they are trained, they're instructed against that, and, and they're given tools to prevent a jury from seeing somebody like that. And I think if we're able to see one another, hey, the potential for that is within every one of us. It's not just in that guy sitting over there. Given the right set of circumstances, you know, that potential is there. Well, so someone commits a crime, let's say they murder someone. So there is a there is an aspect or a responsibility punishment for that or to for justice for the victim, right? Which would be, I suppose, I mean, person needs to be separated from society at some point. I, I would guess, lock up. You're not saying that, and, and you've mentioned before that, that we cannot and and should not perhaps do away with, you know, the prison system. Maybe the way it's administered today or the way it uh, it operates, yes. But uh, but there are some people that because of what they've done, they need to be separated from other people, right? I mean, you're not denying that. Help me understand here. Well, yes, there's a legitimacy to the punishment of crime uh, through the means of incarceration. I think that's a reality. we got to figure out how to live with because of the, the sinfulness of humanity. This is a reality. Now, what, what I think needs to happen is we need to tell the story differently because there's no distinction between good people and bad people. You know, on the one hand, we're all good by virtue of being created in, in the image and likeness of God. And on the other hand, we're all bad because we're sinners. We're all sin. And so there's no distinction there. So I think that somebody who commits a crime, they need to be punished. But the, the goal of that punishment has to be towards restoration. There has to be opportunities for redemption, for reintegration back into a society that accepts them as opposed to stigmatizes them. You know, I read uh, a, a friend of mine uh, shared with me recently that there's some 40,000 educational and vocational restrictions against people who have committed felony offenses. And while that's not an excuse for somebody not to be successful once they leave this place, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is if we redirect the narrative, I think it creates more opportunities 
for people to be successfully reintegrated back into society. So turning the focus just for a second from the individuals who administer the criminal justice system to the defendant or the perpetrator of the crime itself, in order for what you are arguing for to take place, what has to take place in the heart or the mind of that individual? And I'm, I'm asking the question in terms of something like repentance or recognition. I mean, so if I want that prosecuting attorney and the defense attorney and the judge and the jury to recognize that we're all sinners and we've all come short of the glory of God, and but by the grace of God, there go I. And so we need to administer this system in a way that is redemptive and restorative. What needs to take place in the heart and the life of the individual who commits the crime in order for the criminal justice system, I guess, to work or to be able to say, okay, this is what we want or desire. This is, this is what God would say is justice. Well, ideally, I think what would have to take place in the heart and minds of people is coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That would have to take place. But just on a secular level, I mean, we don't have to make this into a distinctly soteriological thing. But on a secular level, I think the concepts are powerful, man. You know, even in the early days of this country, those concepts of redemption, of restoration, those type of things, they had legitimacy to them. And I think that conceptually, if we are able to direct our punishment of crime in a way that affords people those opportunities, then there is power in those things that will fundamentally reshape uh, the criminal justice system. If I know, if I'm in a courtroom and I know that the judge, the prosecutor, the jury, if they're sending me to prison for the purpose of me having an opportunity to better myself, to have an opportunity for redemption, to have an opportunity that I can be successfully reintegrated into society, then that will probably shape how, number one, I view prison, and number two, how I will do my time when I get here. But that's not in the minds of none of those people at that point. Well, yeah, and but just to be fair, I mean, you know, you're sitting here reflecting on this after after 20 years uh, or so in custody and a changed heart and mind. So we're all equally guilty. The original sin suggests that we are all equally guilty before God. So you write, the story of criminal justice, or the story that criminal justice tells, will not allow us to consider ourselves equally as guilty before God as one another. You mentioned Berkowitz and even the Apostle Paul. He was a murderer. And he himself, you know, admitted that. But if we're all sinners, okay, it's one thing. But we haven't all committed a crime that might be punishable by, and I'm not saying everyone's innocent because I I don't believe that. I mean, we're all guilty. But not everyone has committed a crime that is punishable by, you know, incarceration or even death. So we're guilty before God equally as sinners. But we're not necessarily all guilty before man or before the bar, if we stand before man's bar of justice. So 
What do we say about that? You know, first, if we're able to see ourselves as equally guilty before God, and understanding my guilt before God stems out of my selfishness, what, what Luther would call the equivalent, the, the will of the ego, you know, it's, it's my way or the highway. That attitude, that disposition makes me guilty before God. And then as being in community with other people, that guilt translates, because on some level, I've acted in a selfish way against others. And so now I'm equally guilty before them too. Now, we have degrees of acts, like you say, not everybody is guilty of the physical act of murder, but that still doesn't change the fact that we're guilty. And if we can get our minds around that fact, then I think that we can begin to deal with crime. The people who are guilty of those types of things, we can deal with those people in a different way that opens the door for redemption, for restoration, for a reintegration into a society that will receive them, you know, as equals. I think that's why it's important. So let, let's just suppose then, as a juror, that prosecuting attorney, defense attorney, judge, and juror, each one realizes the reality of our own sinfulness, that we are all fallen and that we are all capable of, of sin, and we're all guilty before God. What changes in the criminal justice system then? Well, first and foremost, juries will begin to ask the question, if I'm sentencing this guy to 10 years in prison, what does that mean? Does it mean that he's just going to go and be thrown in a cell, subjected to you know, these types of punishments or whatever? Or am I sending this guy to a place to where he has an opportunity to be redeemed, to be uh, rehabilitated? Now, for the guy that is, that is obstinate, that's not trying to hear that, well, hey, we got a place for you too. Until you come to a place to where you're ready for redemption, you see the value of redemption, where you see the or value repentance. of repentance, rehabilitation. We can do that. Now, I'm not talking about indeterminate sentences that becomes brutal in and of itself, but within the framework of, let's say, a 10-year sentence, you know, using that same example, a jury ought to be in a position to know that if we sentence this guy to 10 years, these are the types of opportunities he has to be redeemed, to be restored, to, to come to a place where he understands that he has acted in a selfish way towards a community of people. And so put yourself back in Jason Carr's shoes, 19 years old, and you're sitting in that courtroom. Let's suppose that everything that you just articulated was reality. 19-year-old Jason Karch is thinking, okay, these people are sending me to prison, and this is a good thing for me. He's going to accept that. He's going to receive it in that way. Well, maybe not in that way, but let me give you an example. Okay. At 19 years old, I came down here and I served five years and got out. And we made the point in the past that I believe that when I got out of here, I was much worse off Sure. than I was before I, I came, before the five years. When I left here, my mentality was completely different. So and is it because of, of the, because of the atmosphere, because of the people, because of the way, because of the brutality? What, what, was the, what, what was it that hardened you or changed you or, or made you much worse? Well, I think it's the, it was the system in total. You're going to go and you're going to fade this, and however you come out, that's how you come out. They care less whether you're good or bad on the heels of it. Because at the end of the day, the way that you are viewed, 
you're one of the bad people anyway. So I do the five years, I get out 10 months later, rearrested for another robbery, and I go to a jury trial for that robbery. So, you know, I've listened to all the testimony, I've been convicted, I've been found guilty. I go through the, the punishment phase of the trial, you know, I listen to all of this mitigating factors for other criminal offenses and bad acts that I've either done or that I'm possibly capable of or whatever the case may be. The jury sentences me to life in prison. And now I don't necessarily know how to articulate what that feels like, but I didn't fall in the floor or throw a fit or, you know, on an emotional level, I expected them to lower the boom. Maybe not to that extreme, mm-hmm. but I expected the punishment. You weren't looking for anything good coming out of yeah. that. Vengeance, retribution. I expected that. And that's what you got. And that's what I got. Now, after that, the prosecutor allowed everyone that testified to come and give a what they call a victim impact statement. And so one by one, they come and they, they tell me that they hope that I die in prison, that they're glad that they'll never be like I am. And these are, these are people that were in the, the establishment, the establishment yes. and, uh, and were somehow traumatized or something? Or? Yeah, I assume so. Some of them didn't even know anything had happened until it was over with, but they're still afforded the opportunity to stand up there. But the interesting thing about that is I'm looking at these people, but they won't look at me. They look at the floor. They look to the side as they tell me that I'm worthless, that they hope I die in prison, and that I got exactly what I deserved when they're telling me all of this, but I'm expecting this. Mm-hmm. This is this is just a heightening of the vengeance and the retribution I've just received as the judge pronounced the life sentence. Well, the last person to get up there was possibly the only person that had a real legitimate right to tell me whatever she wanted to tell me. And she had struggled during the testimony part of my trial. And so as she gets up there, she was already crying before she gets to the front of the courtroom. She's looking down, got a a napkin or something in her hands, and she looks me right in the face. The only one of them that did that looks me right in the face and said, God bless you, and walked off. And it was like a punch in the gut because I did not expect that. I expected the vengeance. I expected the retribution. What I did not expect was mercy, grace. She meant that when she said, God bless you. And I thank God that 21 years later, he has answered that prayer in a a mighty, mighty way. But if somebody in that same position were afforded grace and mercy and an opportunity for it, that resonates with people. That resonates with people in a way that vengeance never can. It resonates with people in a way that retribution never can. And I think if we can build a criminal justice system where we see everybody equal that way, it resonates with people that would fundamentally reshape how this thing works itself out. Well said. And so it would really, the, the entire system would have to move from the, uh, the concept of justice as punishment, or punishment as justice, to the concept of redemption reconciliation is, is the goal of criminal justice, not punishment. I think that's on the backside of it. The first step would be would be to restructure the narrative where the criminal justice system no longer sees this distinction between good people and bad people. It comes to understand that we are all equal by virtue of our value of being created in the image of God or whatever. We share a common equality there as well as an equality as people who are corrupted inherently in our 
our natures. And so once that equality is established, we begin to deal with each other in a way where that equality is maintained. And I think that is the first step, restructuring the narrative. And then we get in a position to where we can start talking about the goal of punishment as being redemptive, restorative, rehabilitative. Thank you, Jason. Just one other quick thing, and, and, and this is on a personal level, you know, going back to Luther, sin and sin boldly, but he adds to that while crying out to God. What do you mean? Because ultimately our only hope comes through crying out to God. Because using, again, the analogy of somebody coming into your home and you having to act in a selfish way to do whatever to stop him, you know, if, if God intervenes in this, in an ultimate way for Christians we believe that at some point Christ will come consummate the kingdom that he began when he came the first time at his first advent when he comes to consummate his kingdom there will be no more of that and so we cry out to God for him to come and, and put a stop to this because no matter how many laws we make how many punishments we devise at the end of the day that selfishness that we share as human beings will remain we just have to use uh, the tools that we have available to us to mitigate against that in the best way we know how that maintains our equality as human beings and with that note we will wrap up this session and may god convict our own hearts individually and corporately that we need him ultimately all of this just brings us back to him as we cry out to him we are hopeless and helpless apart from the saving work of God in Christ may the Lord bless you thank you for joining us on this podcast our next cast we will reflect on justice itself the big J see you then Hopefully this has been encouraging while also challenging you to think through these issues in a new or more concrete way. Listen next time for our conversation on further theological reflections on criminal justice. Thanks for listening to Hurt with Fetters, a podcast that helps us to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. The book Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice is available at Amazon.com.